This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you've actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I've got my partner Mallory Peacock with me again today. And uh, based on questions that you all have sent in, we're going to talk about damages, specifically how to prove our clients' harms and losses at trial. How are you doing today, Mallory? I'm good. I'm excited to be back, of course. And I'm excited that the listeners submitted questions, which I always love. It's nice to know someone's actually listening, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I think we'll just start at the beginning of the questions um, and kind of work our way through. Um, We got quite a few to talk about today. So I think the first one is a really interesting question, and it's based sort of on maybe kind of an old school thought about valuing cases and valuing injuries and harms and losses. And so the question is, um, is three times the medical bills what you typically use to determine damages? Or does that only apply in certain cases? So do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. No, it's not. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, that's actually what I was taught when uh, for soft tissue cases when I first started practicing law is that, you know, you got at least three times the medical bills and Back in the 90s, insurance companies used to actually pay you on like a chiropractor-only case three times the medical bills. Um, That's not today's world to start with. Uh, Insurance companies, unless it's a good case, will not talk about the three times meds. And if any time an insurance company or a defense lawyer talks to you about three times meds, it's because your case is probably worth a lot more than that. Uh, But really and truly, if you think about it, what a case is worth is based on, you know, what would a jury likely do? A jury is very unlikely to take the medical bills and multiply them by three. Rather, they're going to look at each element of damage, uh, and they're going to find you know what they feel compelled to to put in each blank. So I think you really need to look at you know what are the losses and harms your client has suffered. What is the pain? What is the mental anguish? What is the impairment, uh, or whatever the measure of damages is in your state? And then look at are there any what I call piss off factors? Is there anything the defendant did, or maybe the defense lawyers are likely to do? that are likely to motivate a juror to give full justice and uh, and keep those numbers as high as they can. On the contrary, I mean, if your client's not very likable or the defendant is super likable and their lawyer's going to be really nice and, you know, it was a simple mistake, you know, the jury may not be as motivated and, you you know, you need to keep that in mind uh, when you're valuing the case. So do you think that the jur- jurors pay attention to the percentage of fault on the plaintiff and the defendant when they're actually awarding damages, even though they're instructed not to consider that? Absolutely. I, I think that jurors, even though they're told don't consider the fault, if they put 50% of fault on the plaintiff, they're likely to then reduce the damages by half, even though that means you get, at least in Texas, a, a double doozy. You'd get your damages cut in half by the jury and then again by the judge because they put 50% and you only get 25%. Uh, I think, you know, in cases of comparative fault, you have to really work hard to message that. Uh, if the judge would allow you uh, to tell the jury, look, it's going to get cut here, so you don't need to cut it here, it would be great. But in Texas, you're not supposed to tell them the effect of their answer. So, I mean, if there was an objection, you might not be able to do that. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately, I do think that jurors, you know, I think they're more likely to follow the law and award full damages when there is 
uh, aggravated liability, and I think they're less likely to follow the law when your client has fault. Um, one of the important things that you mentioned, and I think that this really goes to answer the question of whether three times meds is how you calculate damages, is there's a bunch of other blanks on the jury charge other than medical bills. And I think that you know you have to work hard to prove up those other elements. Medical bills are obvious, right? You have the medical bill, here's what it is, here's the amount that it is. I mean, so you can you know nitpick about that a little bit. But the other ones, the non-economic damages, are much harder um, to prove up. And I think that that kind of goes into our next question that we have from a listener is, what do you do to work up damages? And, you know, it's kind of a separate question, but if you have a smaller case that doesn't warrant paying experts or spending a lot of money on exhibits or all that kind of stuff, you know, do you do something different to work up damages? Actually, what works to work up damages, in, in my experience, is not the experts. Uh, experts are good for calculating, you know, a life care plan if you have a lot of future medical calculating of vocational loss. But if we're talking about the the human damages, the non-economic damages, I think that people other than your client who can come in and talk about your client's harms and losses, to what your client had before, uh, what they went through, and what they're like now, I think that is what drives damages. That doesn't cost any money, but it takes a lot of time because it means you have to, and I think we're going to get into it a little later today on our plan, but what all you have to do, but it means you have to go there, you have to talk to people, you have to get photos of them doing activities of things before, maybe photos of them in a different situation after, uh, are there any videos, uh, and it just takes a lot of time to develop the harms and losses. Now, of course, the amount of time you can afford to dedicate is proportional to the size of the case, but... You know, even back when I was doing chiropractor-only cases, um, you know, we were getting better results than other people, which is how I was able to build up to doing bigger cases, because I did take the time to meet the friends and family members, find out their stories, bring people to tell the story, and it made, you know, it made a difference sometimes. And uh, you know, when you get verdicts other people don't get, you get better cases. What do you think? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that this we're going to talk about this a lot more um, in the second half of the podcast today is about how you find those people and how you find the right people um, to testify because just because you have a lot of people doesn't mean they're the right people. Not everybody's a great storyteller. Not everybody understands what you're trying to do. Um, and so if you start with a list of 20 people, you might have three or four that could actually be presented at trial. But we'll talk about that in, in a little bit about how of a method to go about doing that yeah well i will say though that even when you don't find a lot of people going through the work of learning your clients case learning their life before learning the harms and losses makes you more authentic uh it it, it comes through when you really know and believe something it comes through at trial and, and i had a case once and my poor kid um, he only had his brother that was the only witness we had for the trial and his brother was a horrible communicator but after going to his house, after meeting his mom, who could not communicate, she was a heavily medicated schizophrenic, uh, who he, he was a single mother, that's who was raising him. It explained a lot of the problems we had with the trial about why he didn't get other medical treatment. Uh, I mean, we had a poor kid that just had just turned 18, lost his Medicaid, is in the world trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think the way I felt for him, the emotion communicated to the jury and we got a really good result in that case so we got like ninety four thousand dollars and 
uh, one ER bill and like a fifteen hundred bucks and like three thousand dollars in chiro treatment. Uh, probably never happened again. Never happened before. But I think the the way I felt for him and and, and uh, how much I felt for him, I think communicated through. And I would only get that because I went to his house because I met his family uh, and spent time with him. Well, and I, uh, all of our clients are much more than just their injuries um, and the physical injury. There's a lot of uh, emotional and psychological damage and injuries that happen because of physical injuries. You don't have to have injury to your head or a brain injury or something like that to have psychological harm because you were badly hurt in a car wreck or even, I mean, like you said, even with a Cairo bill, it doesn't mean that you're not badly hurt and it hasn't affected your entire life um, in different ways. Right. And we talk about, you know, Rodney Jew has his hope dynamic. What did you love to do before? What are you left with afterwards? What do you hope, how do you hope to be better in the future with the jury's help? You know, there are things that don't require a bunch of medical treatment, but can really, really, really mess with the things you love. If you've got a guy that was a marathon runner, you know, he may not need surgery to his knee, but the doctor might say, you can't run marathons anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people might say, well, he can still run a 5K, so what? But, I mean, your dad's a real marathon runner. If yeah. your dad couldn't run marathons anymore, uh, and that would be heartbreaking for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's just, you know, finding, but you don't, you wouldn't know that by looking at medical records. You'd have to get to know him. And I've never been to your dad's house, but I bet there's medals somewhere. I bet there's there are. there's photos somewhere. <laughs> you know, if that's really an important part of someone's life, you just get a feel for someone's life by being at their home. Right. Okay. This is this is uh, what I'm gonna, I'm going to throw it to you this time. So, okay. someone uh, wrote us. They have a wrongful death case, and their only damages are loss of consortium. So I guess they don't have an economic uh, loss claim. Okay. How do they determine a number? And what advice do you have for discussing that number with a client? Yeah. Um, I mean, determining a number is so, so difficult um, in all cases, but in death cases, even more so, because, of course, no amount of money ever will replace the person that was lost. Um, And having that conversation with a client is one of the toughest parts, I think, of our job is telling someone that we have to put a number value on someone's life. and it's not an easy conversation to have, but, um, you know, if there's no economic damages, the loss of a person is, I mean, it's just so, it's really whatever a jury would do that day, whoever, whatever 12 people you get on your jury. Um, and the best way to figure that out um, might be focus groups. Um, but again, focus groups aren't predictive. So you can't you can't say just because this one focus group said it's $100,000, that's what it is. Or this focus group said it's $8 million, so that's what it is. I mean, there's no... Um, I agree with that. But if you do a series of focus groups, and, you know, this is when you have a death case. Uh, and you have a death case where you're having to worry about value. So apparently, you know, you know if it's... If you have a death case, unless you have major, major problems with it, it should be worth well over a million dollars just for the loss of consortium, I think. So you've, you're in a situation where you have a death, you have more than a million dollars in insurance coverage. You know, you can afford to take the time to do multiple focus groups, to do jury research. And, and again, other verdicts aren't predictive either because every case has, has facts that are different. And I think, you know, on the wrongful death, I think, again, liability really drives the damages. I think if you have a defendant that did something bad, that they knew about a danger, they violated regulations or rules, uh, as opposed to you know someone that just made a mistake, uh, I think they're more likely to award more. Uh, 
and at the same time you have a real tough liability and those are the those are the conversations I hate mm-hmm. when you have to tell a widow or parents that lost a loved one or children that lost their parent you know there is a more likely than not chance we're going to lose this case so we need to settle for X uh, and you know that's not a fun conversation and trying to differentiate which you and I can do as lawyers but it's really hard to do when it's your family member mm-hmm. um the difference between the value of a human life and the value of a case, which you know, has liability facts, has insurance coverage limits, and all that stuff in there, and and again, I think the you can't just have that conversation out of the blue with someone you haven't met before. I think this is another part where getting to know the client, spending enough time with them where they believe that you do care about them, that you do understand them, and you build up that trust, allows you to have those conversations. And on the contrary, I mean, you know, going to trial sucks for the family in a death case. They are reliving the most painful experience of their life. They're, like, pulling off the scabs and reopening the wounds. Uh, And I think we have a real responsibility to make sure that, you know, we're doing the right thing, that that the offer is not sufficient, that we're more likely than not going to get them more and that they're willing to undergo that painful process for that chance uh, you know and it's our responsibility to make sure that you know they, they make an informed choice and it's always their choice right. but that they make that informed choice um, I think um, getting to know the client especially when you have to talk to them about value and understanding what their goals are and what means a lot to them in the case, what is the thing that's most important to them about their case um, or about their life in the future can really color the conversation about money. Um, so if you have, you know, a widow that's worried about she has this house payment and she has, you know, this car payment that she's never going to be able to pay off and on her own. I mean, you know, if there's a case because of liability facts that has less value Sometimes talking in those terms that, hey, you know, this is never going to make up for it, but maybe we can do something to help you, you know, sometimes that helps. Um, But it's only after you've really gotten to know them and know what their struggles are and know, you know, where they're coming from. I mean, there's always those people, too, where it's the, the principal plaintiffs, right? The people that feel like no amount of money is ever going to make it right. We want to go to trial to prove to them how terrible this was having the conversation with them about how terrible trial is going to be for them is an important responsibility that I think attorneys have. Yeah, and I think there's nothing wrong on a good liability case if your client's fully informed trying that principal case and mm-hmm. seeing what jury does. I think that is a a perfectly acceptable function of the jury system to, to promote safety, to right wrongs, to give people their day in court. It's just when there are coverage limitations where every dollar you spend in, in uh, defense costs, I mean, are, are our expenses is going to diminish their recovery. Right. Uh, when there is a significant chance of a comparative fault or a no liability uh, defense, mm-hmm. uh, I just think we need to make sure that they're really, really well informed, especially if there's a decent offer on the table. Or if you're in a state like Texas and you just feel like maybe there's a number at which you're unlikely, there's a number at which a, an appellate court may be especially motivated to look at the record very closely to see if there's any error. Uh, I guess that's how I'd word it. Uh, and you start approaching that number or maybe exceeding that number. Uh, you and I were in a situation where we felt like 
and our referring lawyer definitely felt like we were already above that number as we were approaching trial, but we also felt there was more money on the table uh, if we pushed. And so that those are some interesting ethical and professional quandaries we get into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since I know defense lawyers listen to this, I'm not going to give the number, I think. <laughs> I do think it's gone up. I think in Texas, at least, our Supreme Court has gotten uh, more balanced. Mm -hmm. uh, and lately, I think part of it may be changes of personnel. Part of it may be they felt like they've done enough. And part of it may be that it's gotten back to them that defense lawyers call them the home office and go to mediations and say it doesn't matter what a jury does, the Supreme Court's in our pocket. And maybe the Texas Supreme Court's tired of people saying that about them. Uh, but I have noticed that, you know, in Texas, I don't know about other states, the, uh, there are more verdicts being affirmed, and uh, the Texas Supreme Court actually is like a, you know, reversed uh, in favor of a med mal plaintiff, which never would have happened before, affirmed verdicts, which wouldn't happen before. Yeah. So if you're a defense lawyer listening, don't be so confident. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one interesting um, question is how you prove up loss of, like, I guess this is assuming there's no economic damages, this question, and it's just pure loss of consortium damages. Um, proving up grief is a really challenging um, aspect of proving up the death of a loved one. And part of that is, ultimately, I mean, I think that jurors think everybody's going to die at some point. You're going to have to deal with grief of losing someone at some point. But there's a difference between losing someone expectedly and losing someone unexpectedly, and there's a difference in that grief. And there's a difference between someone dying when it was their time and someone dying when it's not their time because someone else did something wrong. Right. Uh, yeah, proven grief is so uh, challenging. And I think w one thing is... You know, we can't just torture our clients. I was in a trial once and someone was asking the plaintiff, the widow, you know, and so uh, how does it feel at Christmas when he's not there? And when it's your kid's birthday and you're singing, you know, happy birthday to your kid and, and you realize your husband's not there, how's that make you? And the widow's just bawling and bawling. Mm -hmm. And the lawyer's actually playing with his glasses uh, and like showing no empathy. And I mean, I think the, the trial was lost right there. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's a danger to just torturing. I mean, you can make a widow or any loved person just cry and cry and cry. You know, I think you risk turning off the jurors. I think you you, you expose them to that much pain at once. Their natural defenses are going to come up. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it really helps to try to focus on the good times before and the hope for the future with the with the plaintiffs and really try to bring out the grief through other people. I think this is a time when I believe in experts. You know, get a grief counselor, get a psychologist to do an evaluation and let them talk about not only the grief this person is going through, but the grieving process and the natural psychological reaction. And, and like we said, how losing somebody in a tragedy, you know, because someone else was at fault is different than losing someone due to, to cancer, which still sucks. I mean, you know, I went that through that with a loved one last year, two loved ones that last year. And it, it, it does suck, but it's not the same as just you know, you have time to prepare for it. Uh, it's different. Um, but having someone explain that and, you know, having other people talk about she's not the same anymore since her husband left. These are the, the mm -hmm. things I've noticed, and, you know, or maybe have them talk about each other's grief, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have as many non-family members that know about it rather than their, than their own. Right. Plus, even when you, even when it's not whining, no one likes a whiner. That makes sense. Even when you have every right to feel that way, nobody wants to hear you say it. Mm -hmm. They want you, they want you to be the 
the it's tough one. What, what what was it that uh, Jesse Wilson said? Like the most powerful thing is not someone crying; it's someone holding back the tear mm-hmm. and fighting to not cry. So, yeah, that's true. I think with just I mean in life, when I think one of the most moving things is seeing people hold back tears. I mean, yeah. that's that's you know that's tough, but it can't be fake. I mean, that's yeah. You know, if the person is an emotional person and they're a crier, I mean, it's, it is what it is. It like, is. You're not going to change them. No, you can't. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with crying, per se. It's just that the strategy is I'm just going to put my, my widow or my parents or my kid up there and just have them ball and ball and ball. Uh, and somehow they're going to feel sorry for us and give us a bunch of money. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And I would much rather have them talk about the happy times and show pictures and show video and then have the grief counselor talk about how devastated this is and you know how heroic they are in fighting it and trying not to show it but you know and then having other you know friends family members teachers co-workers someone else talk about how they're not the same and let them talk about that loss yeah and to me the bigger loss really i mean i know every state is different so we're just talking about the loss consortium uh but you know the in Texas, I mean, at least in some states, you know, you get the loss of all the positive benefits that you had from the person, not just your grief afterwards. The grief is like some more mental anguish in the consortium. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having them talk about all the positive, showing why is this person, why is the world a worse place because this person is no longer here? What are all the wonderful things that you all did together? What were the joys they brought to your life? Mm-hmm. Why did you love this person? What was it about them that, that was lovable? What did you do together? Uh, to show each other the, the love that you had for each other. I think that is so much more powerful. And it, and it's not seen as manipulative. Because I think that, you know, tears are real. Uh, and people are going to cry in a death case. But I think people also feel like they they can be manipulated. And I think you have to be really careful uh, with jurors where they don't just turn off because we're just, you know, putting our people up to cry. Because, oh, there, they, there the lawyer goes again. They're just trying to get me to feel sorry for him. Yeah. Uh, so we had a... A listener pose a question that's they have a case where one of their clients has had two surgeries it doesn't say what kind but two surgeries and is on Medicaid so their medical bills are under $10,000 they're going to trial and they're thinking about not submitting the medical bills for a reimbursement at trial so what um, what advice do we have on this in this this case will make sense to people in some states and not to others on Texas and I know a lot of other states we have what's called the paid or incurred rule so you get to submit the lesser of the medical bill that the doctor charged or what actually got paid, subtracting whatever got written off. Uh, I guess paid and still owed after the payment. And so in case of Medicaid, it's it's tiny. I know Texas and many states are like that. And so I'm gonna throw it back to you, Mallory. So have you had any, uh, what's your experience in whether or not when the medical bills aren't very high, you should submit them? Um, so we have done this, um, and we chose not to submit um, a hospital bill for a badly broken leg that, um, you know, she went to the hospital, had surgery, and then didn't really have much follow-up care. It was just a badly broken leg. There wasn't a lot that could be done for her. It was what it was. Um, so the medical bill was very, very small. Maybe I don't even remember what it was. Um, and we decided, you know what, we're not going to submit it. And ultimately, um, we got a really great result uh, without submitting it. And I think that part of it, I think they refer to it as anchoring. You give the jury a low number, and even though the jury isn't multiplying the medical bills by three times, they're thinking that somehow pain 
or impairment is related to whatever numbers you give them. So if you give them a number that's the million dollars, then they're going to say, okay, well, a million dollars is where I'm going to start. Okay. And then where am I going to end up? If you give them a number that's $3,000, they're going to say, okay, $3,000 is where I'm going to start. They're not going to end up at a million dollars. I mean, they could, but it's a lot more difficult for them to get there as opposed to the jury trying to come up with numbers themselves. I think also the juries juries think medical care is really expensive and it is most of the time um, if you have to pay for it in cash um, as opposed to with insurance and so if they had to come up with their own numbers for what they think something costs it could be a lot higher than what your bills actually show especially if there's insurance or something like that involved yeah the more I think about it the more I think we should in maybe even the majority of our cases not just when there's tiny medical bills submit the medical not submit the medical bills and you know, the uh, one issue I see is you get that one juror that doesn't really like giving money. And that juror will indefinitely, well, we already gave them the medical bills. You know, what else do we need to give them? We don't need to give them much more. Uh, and you get those, like, even I've seen, you know, $100,000 in medical bills for back surgery, you know, five to 25000 for pain and suffering. I mean, you hurt enough to get a back surgery. Obviously, that's some real stuff. Uh, and I think a lot of those cases... Uh, without the the money, and the other problem is when the medical bills are too high, and so you know you get, you know, depending on the rulings you get from the judge, depending on your briefing, you try to fight this and keep it from coming in. But let's say your medical bills are a hundred thousand dollars, but they're allowed to present evidence that had there been private insurance, the medical bill would have been thirty, and if it was Medicaid, it would have been twenty, and you know Medicare would have been twenty-five, you know, something like that. And then you're fighting, it, it, it kind of throws like a dead fish in the whole case. I mean, it's like it all stinks. Like, why are the doctors charging more? Why is the doc- lawyer okay with this? Um, and so then even if you get those bills, it's already, you know, your jurors already had to fight for you just to get your medical bills. They don't have a lot of chips left to trade when they're trying to get your other elements of damages. So I think that, you know, I can't wait till we get to a, a, a point where we just aren't submitting medical bills at all. Uh, be sure, though, and we learned this in this case, to drop your claim for medical bills well before trial so the defense doesn't try to get them in because in ours they tried to bring up what the bills were uh, in the hope that they could anchor down. The, it didn't work, but mm-hmm. but they tried to go anchor down the number. But they kind of look silly to say, well, the medical bills were only 44000 How can she have $2 million in pain? Mm-hmm. Um, but And there was no evidence of that because they didn't come in. But it just, it uh, I would definitely try to keep them out, try to eliminate them out. Uh, in most cases, but especially if I had under $10,000 in medical bills, there's no way I'd put them in. And like you said, you have the the surgeons talk about the surgeries they did. The jurors are going to assume the bills were higher than that anyway, even though that's not an element. Mm-hmm. They kind of throw it in there, I think. Mm-hmm. We'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. I think we've all seen it play out in trial. I had it play out in a trial where I know that the jurors were fighting over they're fighting for me. I had some jurors fighting for our client. And, and some not. And some not. And it was very evident from the verdict that they used all their chips on the medical bills. Because we got the full medical bills. 
and then nothing else and any other damage. And so we sent him back. Um, the court said, well, that's an inconsistent verdict. You need to go back and keep deliberating. Um, and then, then they came back with suddenly all this money for this that wasn't on the original verdict form for pain and suffering. Um, and it was, I think it was a lot more than I had expected. And it's I, based on conversation with the jurors. It was because that was the fight that was happening in the jury room is the ones that were for us. They would have given us a lot more, um, but they were fighting just for the medical bills and we've seen it happen. It's an easy, it's an easy compromise. We'll give we'll pay their meds. At least, at least put them back to even. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they don't have that option, then they have to actually look at what are the actual injuries and think about it. And I think you're a lot more likely to get a good number there. Mm-hmm. But you see that happen in the courthouse all the time. Med, you know, just the medicals. The medicals plus 5,000. Medicals plus 25,000. I mean, you see it even on serious injury cases. You see it happen all the time. Uh, and I think you take out the medicals. Now, sometimes, you know, you get two, $300,000 in medical. It's scary to do that. And then some, like, they're over a million, so it's not anchoring you down. It's it's right. an easier one to do, but those are, you know, how many cases do we really have go to trial even at this point where your medical bills are over a million dollars and you have enough coverage and you're trying the case? That's an unusual situation. Right, right. Um, so the answer for advice about leaving out the meds, if it's $10,000, I guess the answer is go for it. Yeah. Make sure you talk to your client, of course, about it first and they understand. Um, but in that case, since it looks like all the bills are paid by Medicaid, um, you know. Well, the other thing you need to let the client know is that even though you're not suiting your claim for medical bills, the Medicaid lien still attaches to the cause of action. Right. You believe that more likely than not your clients would be better off, but you should get it preferably in writing that you've advised the client of this, they know the rest and benefits, and you're, they're authorizing you to do this. Just, mm-hmm. you know, just in case you don't do well. If you don't do well, it's probably not because you didn't submit the meds. It's some other problem with your case, but you certainly don't want someone coming back and blaming you. Right. So the next question is another question about presenting damages in a death case. So this one says, I represent the spouse of someone who died um, in an accident. There's no amount of money that will make things right, which we talked about before. So they want to do something that makes a difference. What do you suggest for alternative damage models that bring about some kind of positive change? Well, if you're talking about, it's really different as to whether you're talking about settlement or trial. If you're talking about settlement, uh, and you can find like a systems failure or safety failure in the case uh, that you could prevent in the future. You know, making a condition of settlement uh, that the defendant do something to fix it. And I'll give you an example. We had a case uh, where we had a tire come off an 18-wheeler and it, uh, a 77-year-old woman was driving down the road, tire hit her windshield, broke the windshield, she ended up going off the road and getting killed. You know, the money was not our client's primary motivating factor. She did fine. She obviously wasn't dependent on her mother. The mother actually was kind of dependent on her. The mom was living with her at the time of the death. Uh, what, and she had some guilt uh, about bringing a case and profiting off the death of her mother. Now, we still require them to pay us money damages. But one thing that, with the client's permission, we did that was non-negotiable was the reason the tire came off is because the defendant didn't properly checked the inflation and it, it was run underinflated and it just came off. And so we required, and we picked the training video that the trucking company certify that they give all their drivers this training and that they issue them all an actual pressure gauge and not just use a piece of wood to thump the tires. Uh, and in that case, the defendant accepted it and we got the case settled. 
and the client felt so much better. I felt, I mean, we felt like we were doing a good thing. We're trying to save the next life. Uh, and so I think things like that make people feel a lot better. Uh, if the judge will let you, if the other side, you know, either doesn't object or they object and you can overcome it, you know, talking to the client if you're at trial about what their hopes are for the future, kind of like what would they do with the money if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I hope to set up a foundation to do things to prevent this. I hope to set up a foundation to educate children because that's what he was trying to do. You know, you see, find some use for the money, some reason for the jury to give money. And if it's real, I think, it, you know, it would be more likely to, you know, if you're suggesting that giving money to your client would be more likely to bring about a positive change and, and you know, you've researched it and you found a way to make that admissible, uh, which I could see all kinds of issues in there. Uh, I think that's very motivating. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's to do, um, to require the defendant to do something to make some kind of change, I think would have to be through a settlement. I don't, can't imagine how it would work in terms of a damages jury charge. So it's. Yeah, I mean, it can't. You have, yeah. to, that has to be, be done through a settlement or, like I said, if you could, having the, the plaintiff say, if I get this money, I would do X with it, and then getting the jury to believe that they really will, and not just go buy a yacht, um, you know. And again, I, I'm a little concerned about people giving people that advice. I think you need to do a lot of research and make sure that you're ready for any objection that might come from that, because I can think of a few, uh, since that's not particularly one of the elements of damages. But you know, I could also try to think of some arguments for getting it in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. I, we haven't done legal research about this, so we don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know legally how you how you do it, but um, I also think that there is a risk too of making your client um, making sure your client is believable when they say it. Yeah, that has to be sincere because if they just looks like they're making up a story to get more money, right? Then you're going to get nothing or right. almost nothing. So before I did that, I would probably test it with a focus group to see what a focus group thinks when your client says that, because just because just because I'm all on board and I love my client and I know her and I love her ideas and I know that she's going to do it. I don't, you know, does that come across? That means actually getting the client to talk for the focus group, not just relaying what the client would say. Right. Right. So maybe recording it in some way and presenting it to a focus group and getting honest reactions of what people think when they hear that. But there, I think there are many opportunities to do this in settlements and, uh, you know, Randy McGinn, we had her on one of the earlier podcasts and she says she does a demand like, we will settle for $5 million if you make this positive safety change, or $20 million if you won't. And the answer to the question, th their first you know, response tells you who you're dealing with and what kind of person you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I think we've talked about this next question a little bit, but I think we should you know, address it a little more directly. This was from a listener. I had a trial recently with clear liability. Um, but I lost, and so no one got paid. Now I'm wondering if clear liability isn't the only motivation for a jury to pay damages. What motivates a jury to pay damages, and is clear liability not enough anymore? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely liability is not the only thing that goes into the jurors' yeah. minds, even if it's a rear-end collision. If Having lost more than one rear-end collision in my career, I uh, hate to admit that, but it's happened. Uh, so I, I would disagree with the part, not enough anymore, because I think it's never been enough. Uh, and I think there's multiple factors that go into this. Is One, 
does your client deserve the money? Is there, in the jury's eyes, do they, do they believe they're really hurt? Do they think they're the kind of person that isn't going to waste it on drugs, alcohol, vices, um, or some other bad way of spending money, giving it to terrorist organizations? I don't know what it is. Uh, but you, you have to think about that. Uh, you know, w what is it about your client that would make someone want to or not want to give that person money? Uh, are you presenting yourself in such a way that the jurors don't want to not give money because they don't want you to have it? Uh, how do you market yourself? Have you advertised? You know, I think there's a danger with, you know, some lawyers that have an advertisement of them walking to the Rolls Royce or getting on their private jet. Uh, I don't know if it's the case or not, but I'm, I could see a juror saying, well, I don't want to be contributing to that. Uh, so I think you have to watch how you present your how your client presents, how you present yourself. You know, and is the defendant such a great witness where the juror says, it's clearly their fault, but it's an accident. You know, no one meant this. And so, you know, how good is, isn't just, isn't just clear liability, but, you know, is there any blameworthiness? Which is why auto crash cases are, without a company defendant, are so hard. Um, and I think you overcome them either by the defense team typically doing something to be villainous and, and twist things around and, and hide the truth and uh, try to, either through experts or unfair arguments, uh, do something that could be used to get a jury upset, or the defendant just not taking the responsibility at all and, and showing that they need to be taught a lesson. And sometimes just you have a great client, they like your client, they want to help your client, but you know when you don't have a catastrophic injury and you know it's just, you say clear liability, but it's like a rear end collision, not much property damage, there are tough cases and you really have to look at why should a juror care? Why should a juror g give money? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Michael Leiserman's two questions. This case is simple because blank. This case is important because blank. If you can't answer both of those questions before you go to trial, you're probably not going to be happy with the verdict. Yeah. But there is nothing that feels worse than, you know, I lost one last year where the defense stipulated a liability. Uh, and we lost because, you know, my client's MRI six months before the wreck was worse than his MRI after the wreck, and he was a horrible witness. He was a tough client to have. Um, and we had to like get him out of bed in the morning because he was passed out drunk and stuff like that. It was it was a difficult case that he didn't make any easier at trial, uh, and it happens. I mean, if they don't believe the defendant should pay money, even if the defendant was at fault for causing the crash, they're not going to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the defendant not paying money is the status quo, right? That's the easiest thing for the jury to do. So you have to give them a reason to want to do something hard. Um, it is hard for them to make someone else give money. I mean, it's, you know, it takes motivation, right, to do something other than what the status quo is and, and where we are. If they did nothing... You know, we're in the same boat that we were right before we walked into this courtroom. So, and that's you know, what I think Carl Benninger calls it the hero's journey because a hero has to do something hard. It is hard to get money. The status quo is to not do anything. And you know, the walking in, if, if you poll the jurors, the person asking for money probably doesn't deserve it. They're probably faking or exaggerating their injuries. The plaintiff's lawyer is probably a greedy person that's trying to present false testimony to make money. Um, and so, if you don't present a case that overcomes that implicit bias, I don't care what they tell you in jury selection, 95% jurors have some of that in them. And there are very few people that go into trial thinking, most people in lawsuits deserve lots of money. That, that is just not, 
in this day and age not a commonly held belief. There are some people that aren't totally against someone getting money in the right circumstance if they deserve it, but the default of everyone getting money is not there. Uh, so you have to somehow have a story and have a client that motivates people to to say this is important. There's a reason for me to do this, or they're just not either not going to do it at all, or they're not going to do very much. One of the things I think we wanted to offer with today's podcast is I don't know if a model is the right word, but some ideas about how to develop damages in all cases. I think that this can apply across the board, depending on what the damages are. It can be in death cases, it can be in catastrophic injury cases, but it can also be in injury cases, right? Where someone has, you know, soft tissue injuries. So um, I think, Michael, you've done a lot of thinking about this recently and um, in preparing for a few trials lately that didn't end up going forward for various reasons, but... um, Yeah, I've done a lot of thinking. I I was supposed to be in trial this week, actually, and then, you know, resolved uh, late last week, right before we're going to start. And then you and I had another trial we were getting ready for that, unfortunately, the day the day we were supposed to pick a jury, the judge decided to give them more time. Uh, frustrating, but that's the life of a trial lawyer. And I'm actually trying to write a book, which I may or may not get done someday, so I've been putting thought into that as to, you know, what are we trying to do? So the first thing, I think, before we talk about damages, I don't think it's enough just to present our clients' harms and losses uh, in a vacuum. Uh, I think we have to think of where do our clients' harms and losses fit in to the greater story of the trial? And so I have what I call an an ideal trial story. What I mean by that is you're not going to have this in every single case. You're much more likely to have this with a corporate defendant that made decisions that led to the the crash uh, or whatever the incident was that caused injury or death. You know, you're less likely to get all this in a regular car wreck case, but this is, to me, the ideal story that we're looking for in every case. So I see it as kind of a, a three-act play. I've been doing a lot of study because we people think in stories. Uh, we always have, and there is like a traditional story structure that's been around probably since people were around a fire before they had houses, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, and so in the, the ancient Greeks, I forgot, was it Aristotle? I forgot who it was, but one of the ancient Greeks set up like a three-act structure of a play. And so the first act is kind of the setup of the play, of, of what's going to happen. The second act is confrontation, and the third act is resolution. And there have been a lot of analysis that most stories, especially stories that talk about the, the hero's journey, which is, again, you know, something that's reflected over and over and over again in movies, plays, literature, follow this kind of basic structure. So I look at the setup is, and we got to remember, it's a juror's story. It's not our story. It's not our client's story. It's the juror's story. It's the journey that they're experiencing. The trial's about them, not about us. So it starts off, what's the setup? What's act one? What starts when they get the jury summons? You have normal people in an ordinary world. They're being pulled out of that world uh, to this foreign legal thing that they know nothing about. Uh, and you feel very powerless because you're told you have to be there. You're told where to sit. You don't know the rules. They're using a bunch of words you don't understand. But luckily, pretty early in the story, you meet a guide. And hopefully it's going to be one of us who's going to be that trustworthy guide who's going to introduce you to this world and start giving you the tools you're going to need to navigate this world and actually do something while you're there. And that guide better, that trustworthy guide better be you and not the other lawyer. Uh, 
and then you encounter the villain. And so in our, in our telling, in our opening statement, and I think when we start presenting evidence, we need to show what did the defendant do wrong, but more importantly, how far back were they doing it wrong? How far, how much can we show that they knew they were doing something dangerous and chose to keep doing it anyway? If we can, I mean, not every case has that, but it's what we're always looking for. So that's act one is that, you know, they've been pulled into this other world, they've met their guide and they're being shown that, hey, there's someone out here doing something bad. They either have already hurt people or they have the potential to hurt people. They don't care, and but frustratingly enough for the jurors, they have no power to stop it. Right now, they're still just observers. You know, act two is confrontation. So act two, we start with what is the thing that, that caused harm? What is the you know, incident in our case, the crash, the explosion, the fraud, whatever it is we're trying the case about? And then once, you know, once we show kind of that they're blameworthy and that what they did wrong, then we go into what are the effects of that? So the life disrupted. And so that's when we start talking about what our client had before, what they love to do before, their harms and losses, what they're left with. And then hopefully we get into at some point the hope for with the jurors hope what they can do in the in the future. And after the, the harm, they, we show that, then the defense is cross-examining, they're putting on their case. That's really the villain trying to get away with it. And hopefully the jurors see that, they, they, okay, we're struggling because, hey, they're making these arguments. I'm, I'm tempted to kind of go with them. And, you know, hey, well, my, my guide is showing me, well, hey, you know, they're not really telling me the truth. They're not telling me the whole story, but I got to be wary of this. So they've got to struggle with that. And then act three is the resolution. I think it starts with the closing argument of the, okay, the guide comes back and say, okay, you guys, it's time for you to be heroes. Here's all the tools you need. Here are your weapons. Here are the facts. Here are the arguments. Go in there and save the day. And then they got to go in that jury room and they've got to do the right thing and they've got to be heroic and make it right for your client. Uh, and that's when the, that's the end of the story is, you know, they hopefully come back with a heroic verdict and then journey home, go back to their heroic, their ordinary world and they're able to explain to their friends, families, coworkers, and neighbors why they did what they did. Because if they can't explain that, they're not gonna be comfortable doing it. So that's kind of, I don't know that has any damages, but that's kind of the structure where I see damages going into. And so what do we need to learn, you know, is what was the life before, but, but more importantly, what did they love to do? What brought joy and happiness and purpose to the plaintiff's life before this? Then two, what did they go through? What are the harms and losses? What are they left with afterwards? What is the pain? What treatments have they endured? I'm using all writing language, right? <laughs> what is their pain? What treatments have they yeah. endured? You know, what limitations do they have? What are the things they can't do or they can do, but they pay a price with pain every time they do them? How do they feel when they have to make the choice between, do I pick up my kid knowing it's gonna hurt and I'm gonna be in bed for two hours? Or do I see that look and say no and the kid doesn't understand? You know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, finally, I think the hardest part is, what's the hope? What is it our client hopes to do in the future to get their life better, to get back what they can? And hopefully things that, you know, if the jury helps with some money, I can make my life a better place. And, you know, that's what we kind of want to present at trials, those, those, you know, like I said, what they love to do before, the harms, losses, what they're left with afterwards, and then the hope with the jury's help for a better future. Because if you have that hope for the better future, then there's something to actually fight for other than punishing the defendant. You know, the reptile talks about the jurors are all in it for themselves. You know, they want to protect themselves and their offspring don't care about anybody else. That may be true, but I think if we also have, not only do you get to protect yourself, your, your offspring, your family, but you also are helping somebody else and make a better world, I think that altruistic thing really does make a difference in human. I give, I love and respect David Ball, but I also give human beings a little more credit than he does. 
Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show. You know, I think there's kind of a different worldview for a lot of millennial jurors that we've at least seen on some of our jury panels. You know, I haven't done any study on this, and I don't know whether there's any, you know, um, scientific basis for this. But it seems like there is not just wanting to protect themselves, but wanting to protect the world as a whole um, that comes from some of the millennial jurors, too. So um, I think that is a motivation. I think millennial jurors have more of a heart. I don't think we should be scared of them. But uh, I also think they see bullshit real quick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and they do. I mean, I think some of the old school, I don't know that it ever really worked, you know, bump your chest advocacy, I think it's really turned off a lot of jurors. But I think especially, you know, millennial jurors have just seen so much fake stuff and uh, you got to mm-hmm. be really real with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I'd like to talk a little bit about... Um, how do we find this information? So we talked about we need to know what their life was like before. We need to know. I mean, the harms and losses. It's different for every person. So how, how do we find? How do we find it? Well, I mean, you actually are in, in the trenches more than I am. Um, I'm blessed to kind of do. I'm blessed to do what I want to do most days. <laughs> uh, take a long time to get there, and a lot of what I like to do is the, the theory and the strategy. Mm-hmm. What do you do? I mean, because you. You know, like I said, I, I do this too, but you do a lot more of the spending time to finding the stuff out, and you do a great job of it, which means I don't have to do as much of the legwork. So what do you do to try to find – let's start with what they love to do before and then the harms yeah. and losses. Kind of what is the process you go through? Yeah, um, it's it's a process that changes for each client, right? Everybody has a different way that they like to – tell you about things or you can get to know them. Some clients are really comfortable in their home. So you go to their home and they show you what their home is like and they show you their photos and they show you, they talk about their family and you see their kids running around um, and it helps you come up with questions for them. And other people are just like, I don't know about you coming in my home. I don't know about this. Can we just meet in your office? I don't know. So you, you kind of, I think you start with what is your client most comfortable with? And you start with just meeting them as much as possible, talking to them on the phone, meeting them in person, meeting them having lunch together, going to their house, if they'll let you, going to their mom's house, if that's more comfortable for them, um, and then just asking questions about their life, just being the, kind of like a journalist. You just ask questions until you have figured out what the story is. You don't go in thinking you know the story, and so you start by asking about their friends, about their family, about what do they do on the weekends, what do they like about their job. And for some people, that's that they make money. But for other people, it's that gives them a sense of purpose or accomplishment or other things like that. Um, But really spending a lot, a lot of time with the clients is how you get there. And asking as many questions as you can. um, And taking what they're, you know, clients don't know what you're looking for. I mean, they don't know how to tell these stories. They don't know what the good stories are. Not that there's bad stories necessarily, but they don't know what, what you're looking for. There are bad stories necessarily. <laughs> We've heard some. Well, there are bad stories. But, <laughs> and there's things that, you know, you just shouldn't say in front of a jury. Just, um, but, you know, I think spending the time. So some clients, um, they're visual people. They can't figure out how to find the words 
to tell you how they feel or to tell you about their stories. Um, and so sometimes you start with those clients and you say, bring me all of the photographs that you have of you and doing whatever it is you're doing. If they're selfies, mere selfies at the gym, if they're <laughs> photos of you and your kids at Schlitterbahn, if they're photos of you and your wife, you know, jet skiing in the ocean, whatever it is, bring me all of your photos that you can find. And then we just sit there and we go through photos and we say, what is this a picture of? And then they start telling you about the picture. What is this a picture of? What were you doing here? What is this about? And it gives you a bigger, people take pictures of things that are important to them. Yeah. They don't take pictures of things that aren't important to them. <laughs> and so that gives you a really good idea of what is important to this person and what do they love. One thing I've learned recently is, and it's and again, it's a patience thing, is, you know, I've started from the trying from the very first time I meet somebody is what did you love to do before this and my first instinct is when they start talking about something that I think they can still do is say no 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 tell me what you love to do you can't do anymore no I need to find out all the things they love to do because they need to get a complete picture of the life and there may be ways that it's affected I didn't think of before so I, I, I have to before I jump to how are you affected I really need to get the picture of what is your life like before what did you love to do and not cut them off when it's something I don't think is going to lead to where I want to go for the case. And that's been a, a tough lesson for me, but I think when I've done that, you know, one, it, it gives you the, not only the more complete picture, but every time a client starts opening up to you, you cut them off because it's not helping the case, then, oh, wait, you only care about the money, you don't care about me. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it inhibits the, the communication. Yeah, that's right. I think patience is big part of it <laughs> now you also you know and both of us have, have done work with the psychodrama does that help in discovering the life before and after it does um so there's one kind of caveat to using psychodramatic techniques with clients um there are some clients that are so damaged that it does not work um and it puts them in a worse place um emotionally than where they started. So unless you have someone that's uh, a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist that can help you with it, you just tread lightly um, if you're going to do it yourself. Yeah, I think especially with brain damage, PTSD, um, deaths, we need to be very careful. I I totally agree with you on that. But I do think that psychodramatic techniques work work really well. with uh, clients with um, all kind all kinds of different injuries, um, so it takes a long time to use psychodramatic techniques because it's about seeing what the life is and acting it out, going back to those times, reliving things. I mean, it's not something that you just sit around in a circle and you talk about. It's actual involvement, and it takes real involvement from the lawyers for it to work effectively I think yeah, and I think it needs to be done early because you know what one good thing when you when you reenact scenes from someone's life in psychodrama you know part of it is you have people you know kind of act out the roles of the different people in the scene if you can do that early enough where then you can go and interview the find those people interview them and see if they could tell the story so your client doesn't have to tell all the stories themselves because i think the client is the worst person to tell stories generally in the courtroom other than the story of how i'm doing everything i can to get better and how i'm not going to let this beat me and how i hope to have a better future i don't, and how great my life was before to some extent those are the stories that clients can tell credibly and stories of harm loss they're getting money or they're hoping to get money they have no credibility 
So, you know, when we can, sometimes you can find some really good witnesses if you do the psychodramatic, you know, uh, discovering the story. Now you want to say true psychodrama because actual psychodrama is more for treatment. This is more like discovering the story using psychodramatic methods. Uh, it lets you discover who these other witnesses are and then go back and find them mm -hmm. uh, and talk to them and see if they'll back you up. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing to do is, you know, what we did currently is the client that says, I don't know anybody. You know, when we go, what did you love to do? And you go through those things. Well, who did you do those things with? So we had a client, well, I don't know anybody. Well, one of the things you love to do is play basketball. Yes. Who did you play basketball? Well, this other guy, well, who is he? Well, he's my friend. Well, how long have you know him? Well, 30 years. Well, you know, well, how about work? You know, oh, yeah, no, we worked together for the last 15 years, too. <laughs> and right. it found out, you know, we found these people that, you know, knew him, spent, he just didn't think of them, you know. And right. part of it, he had a brain injury, he just didn't think well. But a lot of times, until you go through what they loved, who they did those things with, and then you start meeting those people, um, then you can really get a good picture from the outside, an incredible picture, because the further you, the further, the less likely it is that Jerry thinks they're getting a cut of the money, the more credible they are. Um, I think, you know, too, if you just go to your client and you say, give me witnesses that know about your damages, they don't know what you're talking about. They think that you mean doctors, or they think that you mean their wife, or, you know, someone that knows every single medical visit that they had and every single that have been with them every single day since it ever ha since it happened and from before. Um, and that's a limited number of people for everybody. I mean, there's only so many people that know every aspect of your life. Um, and to, so that's what they think you mean, right? Exactly. Uh -huh. I think, you know, because I think coworkers are some of the best witnesses. Mm -hmm. And I've seen so many people say, but... But they have, I haven't gone back to work. They don't know what I've been through. I was like, yeah, I know, but they know what you were like before. And that's still, you know, when let's say the defense is pre-existing condition, well, when you have a coworker talking about how great you worked before and you didn't have any problems, that is so credible. Mm -hmm. It's even better when you have the coworker say, yeah, they came back to work, but they couldn't do, but I didn't want them to get fired, so I covered for them by helping them, by picking up the big things for them and stuff. That's even better. Mm -hmm. But even if you don't get that, I mean, just having those other people there, the people they pay pick up basketball with, whoever it is, mm -hmm. Uh, even if they could say, I used to play basketball with him, now I haven't seen him for the last year. Uh, but talk about how he, he could play basketball and all the things he did and how much he enjoyed it and how he didn't have any physical limitations uh, before. I think that's really worth discovering. But again, it, back to our common theme from this, it takes time. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. I mean, and kind of what you were saying before is um, if you cut off a client and you say, you know, I only want to know the physical things that you did before. Or I want I want your hobbies. That's the worst question you can ever ask anybody. <laughs> Whenever someone, you know, is asking about hobbies in a deposition or something, I'm just thinking, God, what is this, speed dating? Like, what, if, <laughs> you know, what if anybody ever asked me what my hobbies were, I'd have no idea. What are my hobbies? I don't know. Because it's hobbies aren't necessarily something you do all the time. And they're not necessarily the most important things in your life or the things that you love to do. Yeah. Um, and some things you might not consider a hobby. Like, for example, we have clients that every year they take a family trip to the river and they all go tubing and it's so much fun for them and it's one of the one of the joys of the summer that they all look forward to. Well, you don't really consider that a hobby because you don't do it all the time and it's not like woodworking or something. Um, but it's something that's super important that they are going to miss out on now that they don't get to do. And you wouldn't discover that if you just said, what are your hobbies? Yeah, because people ask me what my hobbies are, and I don't know that I have any. I, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a weird question to ask people, and yeah. so I, I would always, I would suggest to people that they don't start the conversation that way because I don't think people have a good idea of what hobbies are, and it, you know, especially for people that are working a lot or 
you know, there are things that they do for pleasure and for joy, um, but maybe they don't call them hobbies. I mean, because they, they don't, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. So I want to ask you, I've been thinking about this a lot. And so doing this right takes a lot of time. We don't all, though, have choices. You and I are now getting to the point, finally, in our careers, we have a choice on how many cases we have. Most of us, for most of our career, don't either don't actually have that choice or don't realize we have the choice. If you work for somebody and you're assigned a docket of cases, you know, there are a lot of firms that where you say, well, you gave me, you know, say 80 cases to work on, and I think I should only work on six. Well, your, your choices <laughs> are unemployment or figuring a way to work on 80. So what do you do then? I mean, to do it right takes so much time, and but we often don't have that amount of time to put on every case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, um, some of the strategies that you can use um, to help sort of expedite the process, I guess, um, is, you know, you don't want to wait until the very end, like the day before trial, before you're meeting with witnesses. Um, but, you know, if you have a really good idea that this is a case that's going to go to trial, I mean, you know, you can put a little bit more focus in that case. Um, hopefully more than 30 days or 60 days, whatever the discovery deadline is in your case, just in case you get new witnesses or new information. But even if you just set aside time during um, depot prep, um, you know, you have to prepare them for their deposition anyways, I would hope. Um, and during that time, just start the conversation. I mean, you don't have to sit down and have this conversation all at once. It can be by the way, we're meeting for your deposition tomorrow. Can you bring me um, any photos that you can find? And start there. Look through their family photos. And, I mean, that takes, you know, 20 minutes to look through them and finding things that in the photos that you might want to ask them about. So they send you a, a photograph of them camping. Ask them about the camping. I mean, maybe they don't go camping all the time, but maybe in that conversation they'll tell you about something else that, that could trigger it. Um, so... One, one way is through depot prep. Um, you've got to spend time with them anyways to make sure that they're prepared for deposition. That's a good time to do it. Um, I think um, some of the time you can't avoid. So, I mean, there there is some amount of time that it takes to do this right. So if you're going to trial, if you want to do it right, you you have to spend time with your clients I mean, the, and their witnesses. I mean, there's just no, I cannot imagine a way around that um, because you have to know what they're going to say. You have to know what stories they're going to tell. You have to know how they're going to tell them. Um, you know, if someone goes into court and says, wow, you know, I'm in pain all the time. That doesn't mean anything to a jury. Yeah. That pain to one person is different than pain to another. But if you can talk about the limitations and you can describe the pain you can say it's sharp and it's shooting and it feels like there's fire ants all over my knee and it feels you know that means something to people but it takes time to get people to describe stuff in that way it does i think one other thing is just look at your docket and you know they talk about the pareto principle the 80 20 rule that 80 percent of results come from 20 percent of your work and then i heard uh chad dudley and uh What's DeBosier's name? It's Steve DeBosier uh, gave a speech, and they talked about they looked in trial work, and actually more than half of your results tend to come from the top 5% of your cases. And we've gotten charted that in our firm, and the years we've made money, that's been very true. The top 5%'s always been more than 50%. The top uh, top 20%'s always been more than 80% of the fees. Uh, in the years, and when that hasn't happened, we typically haven't done very well that year because we didn't have the hit we needed. And so 
really look at your docket and if you don't have time to do it all then say okay these are my five best cases and so I'm gonna make sure on these five cases that I am gonna do it all on these five cases and I'm gonna do my best on these other cases but I wanna make sure on my best case my docket where I can get where I can make the most difference I'm gonna put in the time mm -hmm. and then hopefully when you do that you get better than average results in those five cases and then you can develop your practice where you can do less and less of the bottom 80 percent type of cases and do more and more of the meaningful cases but you have to work up to that and and like I said you don't always have a choice at a you know when you're working for someone else they give you a docket and frankly people that worked for me 10 years ago had a docket with too many cases but I think learning to to be selective then say okay I can't do it all in every case but these are the five best cases in my docket I'm gonna make sure that I'm gonna do it all on those five cases and get spectacular results on those five cases and then also just be a little brutally honest with yourself uh, and when you realize in discovery that this is no longer one of your five best cases to move it down the list and not continue to put efforts in a case where you're probably not going to get liability or the you know they caught your client working with a sledgehammer when he said he couldn't work anymore which yeah. we've seen happen yeah. uh, and, and not that you necessarily give up on the case but you just say okay you know we we need to dedicate my efforts where they're going to bear the most fruit um, i think one other strategy um and we do this here it's every case we approach it as a team right we have a paralegal that's on the team at least sometimes we have other attorneys that are on the team it just depends on the case um, but if you have an assist a legal assistant or a paralegal or a secretary or a receptionist someone that is also talking to clients if they know what your goals are we can all be fitting these goals into every conversation that we have with the client um, and so that we're all um, so other people can be gathering information for you. So maybe there's not every single piece of information you can gather for yourself, but they can get you started, right? I mean, they can get you photographs. They can get you a preliminary list of witnesses. They can get you, you know, get the client thinking about what what it is that you want at the end of the case. Absolutely. And even though, like, you know, just ask the client who are your damages witnesses, aren't going to you the best witnesses, better than not getting them, not better than having none. And so, you you know, you do the best you can with the time you have. But it's a lot more fun when you have the time to do it right. It's it a is. lot more satisfying. It is. Um, but to do that, you have to say no to a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one of the challenges that I've always, just as a side note, that I've always had with this is you want to be engaged with your client and you want to really listen to their stories, but you're not going to remember every single thing that they say. And so it's always, I always have a hard time finding a balance between taking notes about what they're saying and being engaged in what they say. Um, so one of the strategies that we use is we, um, we put up these big post-it notes on the wall and as they're talking we're all writing it together and they're participating and writing my notes for me and so they'll sit there and we're, we're all talking and one of the witnesses will say you know you didn't write this or no 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 you know yeah. we did that um, on a case and that helps so that you can still stay connected with the client but you have to write it down I mean you're not don't think you're gonna remember every single thing that your client says Absolutely not. Um, and you want to be able to go back to it and look and as your strategy changes, or as you meet other witnesses, you can go back to where you started and say, okay, is this the same story I thought it was? Maybe it's not. Maybe this is not the witness that I thought that they were going to be. Okay, let's circle back and figure out, you know, where we need to go. So that's a challenge that I've always had because I'm the type of person that when I'm engaged, I'm engaged. I'm there with the client. And so stopping to take notes, I, I struggle with that personally. Yeah, but. Absolutely. <laughs>
but your big note things are really helpful. <laughs> they are. They are. But getting the client engaged and taking notes with you, I mean, that helps because then you're all engaged in it and it doesn't feel, I mean, for me, I don't want them to feel like I don't care about them or I'm just, you know, writing down whatever or doodling or something like that. I don't want them to think that. Yeah. And so that they can see what I'm doing and, and they can be more helpful when they see what your goals are and they see what you're doing. So, you know, we take a big piece of paper and write, you know, X client, what did he love to do before? And we write it really big and then we're all looking at the question and we're all thinking, what did he love to do before? We need to fill this big piece of white paper with things that he loved to do before. And all of a sudden we have multiple pieces of white paper filled. Right, right. And so the visual helps with a lot of clients. All right, we could talk about this for days, but I think we're (laughs) running out of time. So listeners, uh, one, thank you so much for listening. Uh, When we started this a little over a year ago, I had no idea if anybody would ever listen to it. And it is so satisfying to see the numbers and to get the feedback. And please keep sending in questions. I mean, we want to help to the extent that we have anything useful to share, uh, anything that that you'd like to know that you know where we could add any value to your life uh, in your practice please you know continue to send in those questions and we will do our best to answer them uh, thank you guys a lot for listening and we'll talk to you next time on trial lawyer nation thank you for joining us on trial lawyer nation i hope you enjoyed our show if you're a regular listener be sure to visit our website www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.